Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced and edited by The Milk Mob and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Good. How are you? Good. Good. So we're going to talk about a couple things today. First, I want to talk about the upper lip frenulum, which I think many of us are hearing more and more about. Um, We haven't really, you and I really haven't talked about tongue ties, so this will be a fun new journey for us. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and unfortunately, there are so many sides to this issue that it's almost frightening to to get involved. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different opinions about it. Lots of it, and lots of experiences, yeah. So the article that I'm going to review is entitled, The Superior Labial Frenulum, What is Normal? And this was done by Chloe Santamaria, Janelle Abbey, and others which was published in the Global Pediatric Health Journal in April of 2017. And this was a study that was done at the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford in California. So just to be clear about what we're talking about, the superior labial frenulum is that soft tissue that attaches the upper lip to the anterior surface of the upper gum, or what's called the maxillary gingiva. So if you stick your finger above your two front teeth and feel that piece of tissue most people have that piece of tissue intact and it feels like a like a frenulum <laughs> i can't a feel mine mine got clipped when i was nine. Oh, you had yours clipped oh okay well that's oh that's really a loaded issue right there but we're going to talk about that in just a second um many people are now calling this lip tie particularly lay people Um, and some lactation consultants are calling it lip tie. But I have to admit that I have a tendency to say, no, it's a frenulum, just like the ear is not a thing that hangs off of our head. It's an ear. So this is something that, you know, and so this study actually validates that because we'll talk about how they basically found that every baby they studied has has one of these. Um, So anyway... um, Although this is a study, I just want to first give some background uh, that the authors shared. So first, they state that there's little evidence that the appearance of the upper lip frenulum has any bearing on latching or feeding, although we know the evidence has become stronger that the tongue tongue ties, you know, the lingual frenulum, um, can play a role in effective feeding. Now, I know that people who may be listening will say, well, wait a minute, I know the upper lip frenulum plays a role because I've seen clippings happen where mothers have, where babies and mothers, you know, have improved their breastfeeding. And that's fine. And we can talk about that at the end of this study because I understand that. Um, But there's just not a lot of evidence. Um, They also explain that the frenulum does look different depending on the age of the child and that younger children like babies, their frenulum oftentimes looks pretty broad all the way down to the base of the gum, whereas as the child ages, that frenulum will essentially become less prominent and rise rise up higher. So we don't see, you know, if you look at babies, if babies could smile um, really broadly, (laughs) you're right, and with their upper lip grinning, you know, really like, like pulled up we would see that frenulum right there where it lands, where you would think the two front teeth would go. That's super common. But if you don't see that in 
adults or, you know, elderly with dentures, if they take out their dentures, you don't see this big frenulum like they have in babies. So it just looks different because it rises up. Um, so there are there are some babies though that do have trouble with their frenulum, and that may have been you um, when you were when you were a child, <laughs> because sometimes they do stay and they stay attached to that alveolar, alveolar ridge where the teeth come out come down, and sometimes the the frenulum will separate the two front teeth, and that's called a um, diastema. And the um, the authors state that a diastema is really considered benign and in most cases doesn't need to be operated on. But some dentists are concerned about them because it can be associated with periodontal disease because food can get trapped between the teeth and the frenulum um, or perhaps have an issue with the spacing of those two front teeth. So, yes, but I think my mother's concern was purely cosmetic. Oh, cosmetic. Okay. Well, I would say that in my practice, you know, as a family medicine doctor, and I do tons, you know, half pediatrics, I would say since 1994, I've probably had one child who the dentist wanted to clip it um at, you know when they when their teeth were coming in so not very common in my neighborhood um so many people who may be listening have heard of dr larry kotlow who's a dentist and he did a categorization of lip frenula into grades one through four and so grade one is where it, it attaches to where the mucosa and the gingiva meet so that would be like um kind of halfway of that halfway down um, of that upper gum. Um, grade two is where it attaches further down, but not really at the edge of the alveolar ridge where the teeth come out, but maybe, but close to there, like in the front of the gum. And then the grade three is where it attaches to the edge of the gum where the teeth come down. And then grade four, it wraps around and it attaches to the hard palate, you know, mm. to the underside. Um, and the idea, according to, with this grading, is that the higher the grade, the higher the severity, so to speak. Um, and the concern is that maybe these frenula are preventing the upper lip from flanging around the breast, um, and so then it's considered tied down. So the goal of this study was to um, describe the typical appearance of the upper lip frenula in a bunch of babies and to see how this classification system worked. So they recruited babies from the newborn nursery, kind of first come, first serve. They took the first 100 um, babies of the families who consented, and they took these high-res photos of the frenula, and they, the main thing that they recorded about the babies is their ethnicity and their gender. So they took six raters, people who would rate these, who would look at the photos and rate the frenula, including um, three pediatric ENTs, two were attending ENTs, and one was a resident they also had a newborn hospitalist like you, one pediatric dentist, and then a lactation consultant. So they, yeah. rated, they rated the frenula according to the Kotlow system, and every rater rated each frenula twice. And so they were like reshuffled, and then they looked at them again. So they didn't know like if they, how, they rated the first, how they rated one, like if they rated A. They rated A again, but A was not labeled as A, so they didn't know what they rated it before. Interesting. Yeah. Check the so the, uh, consistency. Yeah, the inter the intro within the rater. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and so basically every frenulum was rated twelve times. Sixty percent of these babies were Hispanic. Twenty two percent were Caucasian. Eleven percent Asian, and five percent African American. And that doesn't come out to 100, but there's a few various other ones. 
Um, so basically they found that 100% of these babies had an upper lip frenulum, no question. Um, 6% were graded, were rated as grade one, 41% were grade two, 39% were grade three, and 14% were grade four. So this means that um, if you, so the majority were grade two, three, and four, and and those all connect to the gingiva, you know, to the to the upper gum. So this means that the great majority of these extended down to either the edge, you know, to the close to the edge or at the edge or beyond the edge of the upper gum. But um, they also state that the raters had pretty poor intra and inter-rater reliability. So there was a poor distinction between the raters, between the grades two and three, and only eight babies out of the 100 had the same rating for all 12 evaluations. <laughs> Maybe I should have only had three categories. Well, you know what? You are brilliant because that's exactly what they discussed. Is that oh, really, the, that is so great. I love that comment. Yeah, that's exactly what they decided. I wasn't I even was going to. I was thinking about doing it. Like if I was doing that, that's where I would have trouble, right? Like is yes. it just halfway or a little more, a little less? Exactly, and... Right problem with definitions like that. I, I rarely have calipers when I'm uh, with a baby. Right. So their their thought is that you basically combine the twos and the threes, and then you have the fours that are really severe that go wrap around. And then they found that um, only about 64 to 70, between 64 and 74 percent of the time, did one raider grade the one, like a frenulum the same each of the two times. And this is photographs. It's not like the baby's moving, moving around, right? That's like, another great comment because that's exactly what they said in their summaries. Like, hey, you know, these I are high-res. I did not read this. <laughs> but that's the thing is that these are high-res photos. So think about like our labor and delivery rooms or our, you know, post, our postpartum rooms are dark. They're kind of like, you know, the sultry lighting. So you can't really see that well. And, oh, and you know, some of the evaluations, of course, are happening at doctor's offices where the lighting is better. But still, it's a lot different having a high-res photo versus a squirmy baby who's, you know, really hungry and mad at you for, you know. Or who's messing. completely sound asleep and you're like, you know, prying their mouth open. Yeah, exactly. They tighten it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, they basically say that, um, first of all, because these are normal, that everyone has one, we should not be calling them ties. Um, we Because ties imply that these are abnormal. Um, which I totally agree, and I try. That's the fr- that's like my soapbox when people come in and say, "I just want to check those lip time." Like, okay, wait. First of all, let's not even call it a tie. Um, and then, in addition, they say that the Kotlo system is not reproducible or accurate, and they recommend going to you know a three graded system. And um, and then they didn't even talk about treatment because you know treatment is a whole nother story. Like, how do you treat? Yeah, that wasn't what they were. No, no. But I would say that. Um, like when people ask me, do I, you know, should we clip this? I, I think I, I, I think it's a mistake to, if a baby's having um, a frenulum clipped, a, a lingual frenulum clip, to automatically just do the upper lip frenulum. I mean, we don't really know. Well, that's the, the problem, that. right? Is most of the research has to do with um, babies where both were done. There isn't right. a lot of independent study of just having the lip frenulum clip. yeah yeah so i mean i do see some babies where i think it's reasonable to clip it so the the things that what i tell families is 
are basically two criteria. One is if there's pain at the areola where that upper lip hits, no matter where, what position they're in, they can feel the pain and the pressure because there's pinching right there of that upper lip because it's tight. And the other is that there's milk leaking from under the upper lip um, because they, they can't get a good seal because it's kind of just tacked down in one area. Those are mm-hmm. really the two things that I, the, the two recommendations that I you, the, the the two criteria that I recommend to like our PZ and T people, because they get a lot of questions with people coming and saying, I want you to clip that upper lip. But, you know, we don't know, is that going to play a role with how they smile, how their upper lip moves when they're older? You know, we don't know whether or not this is appropriate. Um, I mean, I think it's hard, partly because, um, you know, this isn't an area that medical professionals get much training in. For instance, my son, who is seven, has, you know, his adult front top two incisors in, and they're sort of a little bit sticking away from each other. Mm-hmm. And my mother, who's clearly concerned about this issue, said, oh, you should have the dentist look at his, you know, frenulum there. And so being a good daughter, I asked the dentist, I said, this is something I should worry about. And she said, This is developmentally appropriate because as his adult teeth come in on the sides of his incisors, they're going to push those teeth together. And so I just had this moment of like, wow, you know, how as a pediatrician did I never learn that that is a normal developmental stage as children's teeth come in? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, kids have like such wide spacing, they don't even need to floss when they're really little. Yeah. yeah. Right. Otherwise, then... they're going to need braces when they get older, like I did, because mine were too close. Exactly. Yeah. And then I think I, I read somewhere else that there's no evidence that clipping the frenulum early is necessarily going to make a difference in dental spacing later. Um, so. So that's the other thing is that I think some people think, oh, this look at how broad this is. Uh, we need yeah, to get a clip that's now. That's really interesting because it naturally moves up. And, and it that goes to up, questions right. I get a lot about, you know, tongue tie when we have a really anterior tongue tie and people are concerned about it, but they're not breastfeeding and, you know, whether or not that's going to affect speech later. And Yes. You know, people are becoming more concerned about it. for me to give it. really solid answers. I think that's an area that is going to continue to be a hot topic until we have more research. Right, right, absolutely. All right, well, there's one other topic I want to talk about, um, and that is the effect of, it's an article entitled, The Effect of Pumping Pressure on the Onset of Lactation After Caesarean Section, a Randomized Controlled Trial. And this was a study that was done in Shanghai, China, by the first two authors are Feng Zhang and Yahui Yang, and I'm sure that that's not really how they're pronounced, um, and others. Uh, the authors point out as a background that cesarean births um, is a cesarean birth is associated with early cessation of exclusive breastfeeding and every or any breastfeeding, which is a problem because in China, um, uh, up to sixty percent of births uh, end up in cesarean section, depending on the area of China. And worldwide, about 30% of births now are via cesarean. And and as a matter of fact, before we uh, taught, before we got online together, I was listening to National Public Radio, and there was a piece on cesarean birth in Mexico, and they said that 64% of births in Mexico are via cesarean. So it's not just a problem, obviously, in China. 
Um, and, the, and so previous studies have shown that suction pressure is related to volume. And we know that that's true from some of the pump studies. Um, and some of the studies that are done with infants checking suction pressures and seeing higher milk volumes. This particular group of authors, uh, they also published previous research showing that babies born via cesarean have weaker suction pressures compared to infants who are born via vaginal delivery. And babies who are born via vaginal delivery, who are healthy, you know, term babies, they tend to generate pressures of negative 150 millimeters of mercury, and babies who are born via cesarean tend to generate pressures of about negative uh, 100. Hmm. And um, in their research, they were actually able to tease out that the lower sucking pressures were related to the delay in onset of lactation or secretory activation, that, it was, that these lower sucking pressures were related to insufficient milk supply, the time to first feeding, the prolactin level, crack nipples, and the degree of supplementation. So their theory is that those lower sucking pressures seems to be the bigger issue. Like I think a lot of times we think about when women have a cesarean that there's all these other factors like maternal stress and surgery and pain meds and magnesium and all this other stuff. And they're saying, well, maybe this is all happening because of lower suction pressures. Although I have to say in this research, as I, I didn't talk about this, but in this body of research that I'm going to present, um, they didn't really talk about the management of the mother via C-section. Like did she have general or did she have an epidural? Yeah, like why or... did the babies have lower sucking pressures if they were born by cesarean? And yeah. was it related to all those other factors that we were thinking about? Right. So anyway, this study uh, was done at a baby-friendly hospital, and they recruited women who had a cesarean, who didn't have any other line medical problems um, associated with a delay of lactation. So anyone who had obesity, who had uh, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, anything like that, they didn't include them because they know that those are independent associations with a delay in lactation. Mm -hmm. um, so they put people into three groups. They had the high suction group where they had these women pump every three hours with a four to six hour break at night with a pressure of negative 150. And then they had the, a similar group who pumped the same frequency with a pressure of negative 100. And then they had a control group that didn't pump unless the baby went to the NICU. In all three groups, the babies could nurse whenever they wanted and any milk that they expressed from the pump was given to the baby. Once the milk came in, they stopped pumping, and they defined the onset of lactation as when the breasts were feeling pretty full. At that point, which was, and then at day four, so all these mothers stayed until day four, and on day four, they measured how much milk they were, they were able to express, either like adding up how much the babies took via breastfeeding and how much they expressed via pumping if they were pumping too. Did they um, use test weights to figure out how much the babies well, were feeding? Right, right. So their outcomes were onset of lactation. This is what they were measuring. Um, onset of lactation, the mother's milk supply. They measured prolactin levels at 24 hours. And then the mom satisfaction with how things were going overall in terms of their milk supply and feeding. Hmm. Um, so the prolactin level was done at 24 hours. They did a before and after feeding uh, prolactin level. So they ended up with 148 women, and the results showed that the women who pumped at the negative 150 millimeters of mercury had onset of lactation 6.8 hours earlier, which, was, which ended up being at around 52 hours postpartum, 
So six, like so, approximately seven hours earlier than those who use the negative 100 millimeters pressure, they their milk came in around 59 hours, and uh, the control group their milk came in at around 70 hours. So it was like this huge difference, like an 11 or 12 hour difference, from those who pumped with negative 150 versus those who didn't pump at all. And there was, and they said that there was no difference in how frequently the babies nursed in any of the groups. They all nursed about the same frequency. They also found that the group that had the higher pressure had higher rises in prolactin, you know, like the change in prolactin level before and after uh, feeding um, or pumping was higher than um, than the lower suction group. And then the lower suction group had a higher prolactin response than the control group. Um, and then they looked at volumes and they found that the, the mothers who pumped at a higher pressure had more milk and they had more milk than the lower suction group who had more milk than the control group. And in general, they found that the mothers who were given pumps early had more satisfaction with their supplies in comparison to the controls, although the mothers who had the highest suction pressure had more nipple pain, and they mm-hmm. uh, asked to have their pressure some of them had asked to have the pressure uh, reduced, but they didn't zoom it up right away. Like they, they took three to four minutes to get it up to the negative 150. They didn't like, you know, you can like cause damage, right? If you just like stick it on at negative 150. Yeah. Okay. Wait, I've been dying to ask you for several minutes now about what, because in my experience, all the hospital grade pumps that I've used, they have like a percentage on the dial for the suction, right? Yeah. Is this like 150 is like all the way? It's like 100. no, usually not. They had they had a pressure gauge so, um, connected to the pump, so you could actually just make sure that the pump was. I really at negative want to get out my pressure gauge and go see what percentage that is on some of my hospital grade pumps in yeah. my hospital now, because I find that a lot of moms get started pumping with really low pressures right. where I am. It drives me nuts. Right. I think it's a big mistake. I think, it, you know, they say, oh, just pump to comfort. And the mothers, of course, are going to choose the lowest pressure, right? And think, oh, I'm doing fine. And you don't even see the nipple move. The study move. is blowing me away. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I've been using my gauge now for several years. And I, um, I, I can look at a pump. Like, I pretty much know with the symphony and the pump and style and, and spectra exactly where the one, negative 150 is and where the negative 250 is. And so I can just say, no, this is where you need to go. So it doesn't take long to learn that. It You know, after doing it, using it consistently with pumps for about a month, I was able to figure out, you know, just to remind, just to remember where it is. Yeah, um, that's fascinating. Yeah, but the other thing is that um, they did measure infant sucking pressures. All these babies were born via cesarean, and they found that the typical sucking pressures in this population was negative 100 to negative, or negative 98 to negative 117, which is lower than the studies uh, that are done of babies who are born vaginally. So this body of research looking at the sucking pressures was similar to their previous body of research showing pretty much the same sucking pressure in babies who are born via cesarean. So they feel that those weaker pressures generated by these babies born via cesarean may lead to the late onset of lactation and lower milk volumes. So, um, but they also warn like more is not better. So if you go past the negative 150, that that could backfire, right? Because people have more pain and then they don't let down and it causes trauma. So you yeah. really do want to be careful with how much pressure is being you know, that's being increased. Um, the other thing is they say that, uh, you know, in conclusion that really if moms are being separated, 
from babies that we really do want to make sure that they are getting to that proper pressure. And that's, I would say this has become a little bit of a soapbox for me too when I see moms who are referred to me and the baby's still in the NICU and I look to see what they're doing with their pumps um, because they're, they're seeing me for low milk supply. You know, the, one of the first things I'm doing is just adjusting things and many times they're coming to me saying, well, I can't get it up very high because it hurts so much. And then I realize, well, you need a different shield, you know. Yeah, um, it's not the right size. Right. And sometimes it's not the right pump because, you know, if you listen to the pump cycles, you know, some of them are, have different, um, they have oh, different, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Suction, um, uh, what's the curves, I guess you would say. So yeah, when we like, had the uh, three day physician course and you brought all the pumps and I yeah. was fairly experienced, but I hadn't had them all side by side and listen to if they're like purring like a kitten as they yeah. go up versus sort of, on off and that can really affect how it feels yeah yeah I mean I think everyone has different just like everyone likes to be touched differently Um, everyone's going to respond maybe with a different cortisol level depending on how how abrupt or how smooth you know that suction is Um, I heard recently that the purely yours pump for example Amida which is a very nice pump and it generates nice pressures they recently changed their cycle so that it's a it's not like the boom boom it's more like you know it's a it's a softer rise a softer yeah maybe a little bit more like a slightly longer duration at the peak at the peak I'm not exactly sure what the difference is but I've heard it's more user-friendly and um and it's quieter as well so even those little differences may make you know may play a role in how women respond to a pump Um, but anyway I thought it was good I think uh I think the big message is just making sure that when women are pumping that's the baby at that time and we need to make sure that baby's working as well as a healthy term baby would, making sure that it's generating sufficient pressure. Absolutely. Yeah. And that goes back also to the fact that moms who have late preterm babies often need to do something aside from just putting the baby to the breast because those babies just aren't as strong. Right. Exactly. Right. Sometimes they just need to, Right especially if they're right. And, and actually what our protocol at our hospital for the 35 to 37 weekers is to pump in addition to nursing. And then the question is, well, sometimes these babies are really good nurses. So do we really need to do that? Well, yeah, we probably should, unless we're putting transducers in their mouths to look at their pressure. It's probably a good backup thing to do yeah. um, to really get things going. But then there, are, but then we also have to listen to moms. So like I had a mom, a couple months ago who had a history of a very high supply with her first baby and then her second baby ended up in the NICU. So when she started pumping, she said, you know, I I don't think I should pump like every three hours because I make a lot of milk. And lo and behold, at a week, you know, the, 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 well, the staff said, no, no, you really do need to because you have a preemie. Uh-huh. Well, I've at a week. i story in she several, was, from several different people, and then she had too much. And she had 80 ounces a day. Oh, yeah. And then she came gosh. to me like, I am having a nightmare here because I don't know. I can't seem to it's reduce my supply. Yeah. And then her body doesn't listen to the fullness, and then she can't back down. So then she needs medicinal mm-hmm. intervention. So, um, so then there's that problem, too. So we have to always keep it in balance, right? <laughs> So, oh, so much to do. So much to do. All right, Karen. Well, it's great talking to you. And, Those are awesome. Um, I can't wait to talk to you again. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Okay, take care. See ya. Bye. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, contact us through themilkmob.org. We have other educational projects going on there, such as the Clinical Question of the Week and our Outpatient Breastfeeding Champion programs. 
If you want to see what we look like, check out our Facebook page, where you can also share comments and questions with your co-listeners. To learn more about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, please visit www.bfmed.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you in a few weeks.